Okay, cool. Go okay, so we're good to go? We're good to go. All right. So a talking donkey and heaven's worst assassin meet on a path. Almost sounds like the lead into the joke with a really, really bad punchline. But it's actually a story that's found in Numbers 22. So the only lead into the story about Balaam. So there's this king, a guy named Balak. He's got his little kingdom going. Everybody seems to be happy and, and doing pretty well. And then one day he gets new neighbors. There's a new people that kind of move through the area. And Balaam's a little terrified. These guys have left a long trail of bloodshed all the way from Egypt right up to him. And he starts getting pretty concerned, thinking, well, they're here now. He's heard the stories and he starts to think, you know what? We're probably going to be next. So Balaam figures, well, or Balak, sorry, figures there's this guy named Balaam. He's got a connection to the gods. And these Israelites probably have a pretty powerful God on their side for all their military prowess. So he sends a message out saying, hey, Balaam, you know, we've got some new neighbors here. I'm a little worried about this. Here's a whole bunch of money. Come on down and let's put a curse on these people before the inevitable war happens and we can gain the upper hand. So Balaam kind of sleeps on and he invites the people to stay overnight and does some praying and thinking and talking and comes back in the morning and says, you know what, God told me these are a blessed people and I can't curse them. So sorry, can't help you out. And he sends all the dignitaries back to Balak. Well, Balak's not happy. He's pretty worried. Something's coming down. He sends more powerful people with power, promises of way more money to get Balaam to rethink this whole thing. And so Balaam does the same thing. He goes, well, you know, stay the night and, uh, you know, I'll let you know in the morning. So, well, that night God says, okay, well, you can go with them, but the only thing you can do is say the words that I put in your mouth. You can't curse these people. They're a blessed people. So, yeah, so basically Balaam packs up his donkey. They end up going back to see Balak. Well, on the road back, all of a sudden the donkey veers off the path and Balaam's like, okay, that's kind of weird and stuff, right? Gets him back on the path, keeps going again. The donkey veers off again. This time he crushes his foot up against the wall. Balaam's getting a little choked at this point. Gets the donkey back on the path and a short time later, the donkey just stops moving. So Balaam pulls out his stick and he starts wailing on the donkey and the donkey starts to talk. And he tells Balaam, look, there's danger on the road. You can't go any farther. There's, you know, and right at that moment, God opens Balaam's eyes. And what he sees standing on the road is an angel with a sword drawn. Well, the angel tells Balaam, you know, God's pretty choked at you right now. And if your donkey hadn't veered off the road and stopped moving now, you'd be dead by now because of what you're doing. So let's hold up for a second here. So Balaam had asked God what the thoughts were on these people asking if he could curse the people. God said no. Well, Balaam asked a second time. This time God goes, yeah, okay, go with them. But all you can do is say the words that I give you. Well, this sounds to me like God kind of said, okay, you know what? You've got the all clear to travel. But you can only say what I tell you to say. Well, now here's the angel stating that God actually wants him dead at this moment for kind of doing what God gave him the clearance to do. So there's some weird stuff going on here. So let's disregard for a second that this angel slash assassin can't leave the path to complete his mission. Um, Balaam survives because the donkey moves like seven feet to the left. Let's disregard that the donkey starts to talk. This sounds a lot like God's changed his mind. He's given Balaam the all clear and now he's backing out on it and Balaam's gonna pay the price. Well, as they're talking, Balaam accepts that he's in the wrong. He says, you know what, if you want me to go back, I'll go back. 
Well, the angel reinforces God's message and says, hey, actually, you know what? Keep going. But remember, you can only say the things that God wants you to say. So Balaam continues on. And what ends up happening is he ends up pronouncing a number of blessings on Israel, much to the dismay of Balak, who then refuses to pay Balaam, and they basically part ways and everybody goes back to their homes. So this passage presents so many problems as I'm going through it that I had a hard time even starting. When I look through it, I realize, you know, God changes his mind probably at least four times in this thing, and yet I believe that God is consistent in his path. One of Balaam's blessings actually says, God isn't somebody who changes his mind. And my alarm bells are going off going, hang on, he just did four times. There's a donkey that speaks. Um, The angel assassin doesn't seem to be very good at his job. And why does God need assassin angels anyway? The Israelites have a really violent history all the way from Egypt through, and yet they're the people of God who I believe to be nonviolent. Even Balaam's blessings from God start off pretty nice, praising, saying good things. And then they start to get increasingly violent and increasingly dark as they go on. One of Balaam's blessings has often been referred to as a prediction or a prophecy about the coming Christ. And yet when you read it, it talks about how violent the Savior is going to be and this guy is going to be an incredible warrior and it doesn't fit the Jesus picture at all. And there's more. The deeper you get, there just seems like there's more and more stuff there. But let's dig back up a bit and take a look at some of the characters that are in this play. So Balak was your typical king of the day. Basically, he's just trying to keep his kingdom intact, keep things flowing. He sees these people as a threat. And he knows that Balaam has powers. He seems to be connected to, to some sort of a higher power. In fact, he says at one point, whoever you bless stays blessed and whoever you curse stays cursed. He wants to tap into that. Might be good to note here too that in our terms, we think of the divine in two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of Satan, or one God, one Satan is kind of where our mindset is at. But in that day, that would have been really rare. It would have been more, there's a bunch of gods, the gods are at war with each other, and the feeling that often people were just pawns in their little games. So it was rare for people to believe in just one God. So Balak must have figured, well, the Israelites have a pretty powerful God. Maybe Balaam will be able to sway him and and bring him over to our side. So basically his message is, hey, Balaam, you know, find me a God who's strong enough to put a curse on these people. For Balaam, it's unclear if he would just believe in one God or if he believed in multiples. But in this particular passage, it's pretty clear he's praying to one God. He even refers to him as Yahweh, which is actually a pretty intimate term for God at that time. The writer is definitely referring to it as the same God that the Israelites worshipped. So everybody's got to learn a li- earn a living somehow. Balaam earned his living by being a mediator between God and people. He would petition God in exchange for favors from God and money from people. And God indulges him. So when Balak comes calling, this would have been a huge, huge business opportunity for him. As the story unfolds, what might be best seen the role of Balaam as becoming, you know, assuming the role of a court official, somebody who would negotiate between nations or between people. So Balaam speaks to God on behalf of Balak and then delivers the reply back. And it's a pretty dangerous role. Keep in mind the era that this is in is like Game of Thrones type era. You can be killed simply for looking at royalty the wrong way, entering their presence at the wrong time, wearing the wrong thing. 
Never mind delivering news straight to the king that the king had specifically told you, I want something else. But that's exactly what Bailiff does more than once. When I was a kid, we were taught as you pray, if God doesn't seem to be answering your prayer, ask again, keep going back, keep going back. Balaam kind of does that. He gets the answer that he didn't really want to hear. He goes back to see if maybe God could change his mind and he'd be able to somehow cash in on this and feed his family for a really long time. There's a really big payday waiting at the end of all of this. But does that really make Balaam a bad guy? So Balaam gets his modified answer. Go, but only say what I tell you to say. So maybe Balaam was thinking somehow that he could play both sides here. He could be obedient to God, but somehow he could still get the money. Maybe he was hoping God would change his mind by the time he got to the place where the Israelites were and he'd figure out a way to still get paid. So God sends heaven's worst assassin to stop him. It's an angel whose mission is thwarted by a donkey who moves a few feet off the path and just simply goes around him. So the angel moves farther down the path. Well, the donkey does the same thing. He just kind of goes around him again. And, you know, this time he's got to scrape up against the wall and actually hurts Balaam's foot. So the angel moves again, and I guess to a really, really narrow part of the path where he couldn't go around. And the donkey stops the assassination again by simply stopping. As the angel speaks, it seems like Balaam figures out why God is angry. He admits he's wrong, and he actually offers to go back and say, you know what, I'll bail on the whole thing. If you're that ticked off, I'll just, you know, let's just stop. But the angel sends him on a way more dangerous mission. Go to the king and right in his presence, speak directly in opposition to what he's actually going to pay you to do. And Balaam accepts his mission. And it triggers a negotiation between Balak and God done through Balaam. Let's make sure we stay in the time frame here. So kings would send messages through court officials to other kings. And it'd be anything from, I want to marry your daughter, to I want to negotiate a treaty, or hey, let's get together and beat up those guys over there. Um, or give me X amount of stuff, or I'm going to attack you. And sometimes the way the king would answer was by simply killing the messenger. And his death would serve as a message saying, you know, go get stuffed. I don't want to comply with what you're suggesting. So somewhere around four times, God says, these people are blessed. You can't, you can't curse them. And he's really speaking to Balak. He's not really speaking to Balaam. And four times Balak says, no, that's not good enough. I need these people to be cursed. And he, he comes back to God saying, I want these people cursed. And Balak playing this middleman, every time he goes on either side, God's already demonstrated he's perfectly willing to kill him for what he did. So he's got to know that every time he goes back, there's something going on here. He's not playing a safe game with this. In fact, the fact he survives these encounters is actually pretty amazing. But it's easy to need a villain in any story. Hollywood does it perhaps better than anyone. They tell you who to like, who to hate very, very quickly. And as I read this story, one of the things I realized is that I needed Balaam to be the villain in the story. And I kept looking for the reasons why God would be displeased with them. Why would the way things unfolded? And I realized that looking through our lens of Israel as God's chosen people, it's really easy to paint anybody who opposes them as the villain, as the bad guy. But the only thing Balaam really knew at this point was it was his job to mediate between Balak and God. And in his mind, he's just fulfilling the role that he was playing. There wasn't anything personal at all on Balaam towards the Israelites. 
that he was just simply asking, acting as a messenger. But it's interesting that as history unfolds, there's some really, really nasty stuff written about Balaam. Things about enticing Israelites to sin with prostitutes. He practiced witchcraft. Um, in other Jewish literature, he's accused of a less than wholesome relationship with his donkey. And it got me thinking, why do we need to vilify people who oppose us? People who operate differently than us. And yet we do it all the time. We do it to political parties we don't like. We do it to sports teams, to people at work, family members, um, people with other belief systems. It's what we do when we need to discredit somebody. You say, you know, he might have a, he might have a point here, but you got to bear in mind that, you know, he did drugs or he stole or he had a less than wholesome relationship with a donkey. An interesting side note is the stories unfold over the next few centuries. Balaam becomes more and more and more of a villain. He orchestrates a secret plot to seduce Israelite men with beautiful women, resulting in God killing 24,000 men for immorality. There's another what moment. But in the original text, Balaam and Balak part ways after this blessing incident. He's never recorded in the original story of the immorality thing with the, with the prostitutes. He's never mentioned in that entire story. What's also interesting in the next story, kind of unrelated to this one, is that God seems to blame the men in the story. And yet, further down the road, as more stories get told later and later down the road, suddenly the women are to blame for all of this. And it's because we need our villains. It keeps us from dealing with our own stuff. So why is God so ticked off at Balaam? Simple terms, I have no idea. Best as I can tell, it might be because Balaam might be trying to play both sides here and God realized there was some insincerity there and he was trying to get that dialed in. Um, Balaam did have a pretty good payday coming and it's only natural that he might try. And as I was thinking about this, kind of heard Jesus' words too saying, you can't serve God and money. It's always going to turn toxic. So maybe that was it. I really don't know. What I do find interesting in the story as well, though, is that Balaam refers to God as Yahweh, which is a pretty personal term. It's also unmistakable as being the term for the God of the Israelites. So this guy had a relationship with God to the point where he seemed to have a direct line of communication with them, and they would converse back and forth over their stuff. But he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't even part of their culture. It seems like this is his first introduction to the Israelites is when they come in next door. So where did he learn this term? Where did he get this relationship unless God himself revealed himself to Balaam? And I see in that another little glimpse of how God seems to operate. Where the outsider is on the first name basis with God and the, with the God of the Israelites. And it's a reminder to me to listen to God outside the narrow scope of who I might think has the truth and who doesn't. So one, one of the ways where God has shown me to look outside of the areas I would normally look is through a couple of friends that I have up in Medicine Hat. So they joined us on a car tour through our shop the one year and we got to know them a little bit there. And it's just one of those people or one of those couples where you just seem to hit it off right off the bat. And, uh, you know, as we got to know them, we, we came to realize very, very quickly that they had really, really, well, especially him, had absolutely no use for God. She had like a really, really, really small partner heart for him, but not a whole lot. But as we got to know them better and, and life unfolded over the next couple of years, they did something that 
to me was just really mind-blowing. Um, so they had another mutual friend that joined us on the car tours. We got to know him somewhat as well. But he ended up getting really sick. And, uh, you know, he was going to pass away. It became clear he wasn't going to make it. And what this couple did over the next probably six months or so as he was deteriorating um, just blew my mind. Um, they weren't family. This was just a guy that they knew. They were close friends, but it was, it was just a friend that they knew. But they went through the effort of closing down his business. He had a tattoo parlor that also had like a really weird gift shop stuff with all kinds of actually some pretty cool stuff in there. But they went through the whole process of doing garage sales to sell his stuff, cleaning the building out, making sure all the leases were taken care of. Um, he had a car collection that was pretty extensive. And, uh, you know, they set up buyers for the cars. They, they arranged for things to be taken care of when he couldn't take care of them himself. Um, they did most of the communication with his family. He was estranged from 90% of his family. So they took over the communication role to kind of try to build bridges back between him and his family. And uh, when they came out to visit, they actually hosted some of them in their home while they were there visiting. And it really struck me that what these people were doing is exactly what Jesus is asking us to do. And uh, it was one of the first really, really clear things where it really hit me going, you know what? It's not all about, you know, saying the right words or having the right faith. Um, what Jesus is really asking us to do is love each other. And, you know, this couple was a couple that modeled that. I wouldn't say perfectly because there, there were some moments, um, but they modeled that really, really, really well. And even in, in the face later when, when things went bad with a few of the family members, they stayed true to their original thing and they, and they saw it through to the end. And uh, yeah, it was just a great example to me of God speaking outside of the normal channels that I would look at. It's easy to get locked into checking credentials before we'll accept a person as being in tune with God. And we fall into the, well, yeah, he's got a good point there, but you know what he did last year. And it's teaching me I need to learn to live with the tension that God speaks when and where and whoever he wants. The story's been pretty interesting for me as I studied it. Pretty frustrating sometimes because there's so many things that I really can't offer an answer or a tidy solution to. So full of stuff that gives me that moment I got to stop and go, did I really just read that? Is that really how things work? There's talking donkeys, poorly trained angels, violent prophecies slash blessings, God changing his mind, people communicating directly with God through some strange rituals. It's all there. But in the midst of all the stuff that I've got to hold in tension, there's little gems that shine a light on the toxic us against them mindset that illuminate God as bigger than our narrow vision and of the complete outsider having the courage to speak God's word in the face of certain death. So this one's going to stick with me for a while.